This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hello, I am Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm here today to discuss a question for Step 2 Secrets on general surgery. This is thanks to Elsevier's clinical key. Here we go. A 45-year-old female presents with a chief complaint of epigastric pain 30 minutes following a meal. She describes fever, nausea, and emesis, but denies rigors. Her past medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes, Her temperature is 38.2 Celsius or 100.8 Fahrenheit. Her other vitals are normal. Physical examination reveals an obese woman who is alert and oriented and appears uncomfortable due to her pain. Extra ocular movements are intact. Her pupils are equal, round, and reactive to light. And oral mucosa are pink and moist. On cardiac exam, there's a regular rate and rhythm. S1 and S2 are normal and there are no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. On abdominal exam, bowel sounds are positive in all four quadrants without hepatosplenomegaly. She has tenderness to palpation in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen. There is no fluid wave or shifting dullness, and no masses or pulsations are palpable. Which of the following physical examination findings will help identify the most likely etiology of her pain? Is it A, Cullen sign, B. Gray-Turner sign, C. Murphy's sign, D. Soas sign, or E. Rovsing sign? And the correct answer here is choice C. Murphy's sign. Murphy's sign, which consists of sudden inspiratory cessation on palpation of the right upper quadrant, is suggestive of acute cholecystitis the classic presentation of which is described in this vignette. 
To look at the other answer choices, so Cullen's sign is a hemorrhagic discoloration of the periumbilical area, which is due to intraperitoneal hemorrhage from any cause. Gray-Turner sign is a discoloration of the left flank, which is associated with acute hemorrhagic pancreatitis. The psoas sign is a sign that indicates irritation to the hip flexor muscle group in the abdomen and indicates or points towards an inflamed appendix that's retrocecal in nature, since the iliopsoas muscles are also retroperitoneal. Rovesing's sign is another finding classically seen in appendicitis, wherein palpation of the left lower quadrant of a person's abdomen increases the pain felt in the right lower quadrant. When this occurs, the patient is said to have a positive Rovesing sign. Murphy's sign, which was choice C, our correct answer, is the only one that suggests acute cholecystitis. And now, let's get back to USMLE Step 2 Secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the General Surgery Chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th Edition. Question 1. Define the acute abdomen. What physical exam signs suggest its presence? Acute abdomen generally refers to an inflamed peritoneum, which is often due to a surgically correctable problem. Patients with an acute abdomen often receive a laparotomy and or laparoscopy because it signifies a potentially life-threatening condition. The best physical exam confirmations of peritonitis are rebound tenderness and involuntary guarding. Rebound tenderness is elicited by letting go quickly after deep palpation of the abdomen. Pain occurs in the areas of palpation, with generalized peritonitis, or at the location of localized inflammation, such as the Rovsing sign in appendicitis. Involuntary guarding describes abdominal wall muscle spasm that cannot be controlled. Voluntary guarding, in which the person reflexively or willfully tenses his or her abdomen during attempted palpation, and tenderness to palpation are softer signs often present in benign diseases. Question 2. What should you do if you are not sure whether a stable patient has an acute abdomen? When you are in doubt and the patient is stable, use as-needed pain medications, perform serial abdominal examinations, and consider CT scan. If the patient becomes unstable, proceed to laparoscopy and or laparotomy. Question 3. Name a few causes of peritonitis that do not require laparotomy or laparoscopy. Pancreatitis, many cases of diverticulitis, and spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Question 4. Specify which conditions are associated with pain and peritonitis in the listed abdominal areas. Right upper quadrant. Think gallbladder and biliary, such as cholecystitis and cholangitis, or the liver, such as an abscess. Left upper quadrant. Think spleen. And you can see rupture with blunt trauma. Right lower quadrant. Think appendicitis or pelvic inflammatory disease. Left lower quadrant. Think diverticulitis or pelvic inflammatory disease. The epigastric area. Think the stomach, such as peptic ulcer or pancreatitis. Question 5. What are the classic signs and symptoms of gallstone disease? Classic gallstone symptoms include postprandial colicky pain in the right upper quadrant with bloating 
and or nausea and vomiting. The pain usually begins 15 to 60 minutes after a meal, especially a fatty meal. Look for Murphy's sign. Palpation of the right upper quadrant under the rib cage causes arrest of inspiration due to pain as the main physical exam finding for cholecystitis. Question 6. What are the six Fs of cholecystitis? How are the demographics of patients with pigment stones different from those with cholesterol stones? The first five Fs summarize the demographics of people with cholesterol gallstones. Fat, 40, fertile, female, and flatulent. The sixth F is febrile, which indicates that such patients have now developed acute cholecystitis. Patients with pigment stones, that is calcium bilirubinate, are classically young patients with hemolytic anemia, such as sickle cell disease or hereditary spherocytosis. Question 7. How is a clinical suspicion of cholecystitis confirmed and treated? Ultrasound is the best first imaging study for suspected gallbladder disease. It may show gallstones, a thin layer of fluid around the gallbladder, and or a thickened gallbladder wall. A more specific ultrasonographic Murphy sign using direct visualization of the gallbladder can be obtained. Variant anatomy and significant obesity can create uncertainty. A nuclear hepatobiliary skintographic study, that is a HIDA scan, clinches the diagnosis with non-visualization of the gallbladder. The treatment is pain control and cholecystectomy. Antibiotics may be indicated if infection is suspected. A laparoscopic approach is generally preferred over an open procedure. Question 8. Define cholangitis. How does it differ from cholecystitis? How is it treated? Cholangitis is an inflammation of the bile ducts, whereas cholecystitis is an inflammation of the gallbladder. Cholangitis is classically due to biliary obstruction with subsequent bile stasis and infection. Cholidocolithiasis, a gallstone in the common bile duct, and malignancy are common causes of obstruction. Autoimmune cholangitis, such as sclerosing cholangitis, and primary infection, such as Clonorchis sinensis and other parasite infections common in some parts of Asia, are other causes. Cholangitis classically pre presents with Charcot triad, which is right upper quadrant pain, fever or shaking chills, and jaundice. Patients may have a history of gallstones. Start broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover bowel flora, such as piperacillin with tazobactam, and then manage more definitively depending on the circumstances. For example, cholecystectomy with evacuation of any common duct stones for gallstone disease, biliary stent placement for unresectable malignant obstruction. Question 9. Describe the classic presentation of appendicitis. How is it treated? Appendicitis classically presents in 10 to 30-year-olds with a history of crampy, poorly localized periumbilical pain followed by nausea and vomiting. Then the pain localizes to the right lower quadrant and peritoneal signs develop with worsening of nausea and vomiting. It is said that a patient who is hungry and asking for food does not have appendicitis, and this is called the hamburger sign. A classic clue to the diagnosis is Rovsing's sign. When you palpate a different quadrant and then quickly release your hand, the patient feels pain at McBurney point which is two-thirds of the way from the umbilicus to the anterior superior iliac spine. 
McBurney point is the area of maximal tenderness in the right lower quadrant and the site where an open appendectomy incision is made. Ultrasound and CT are increasingly used to confirm the diagnosis before surgery in stable patients. Question 10. What is the cause of left lower quadrant pain and fever in a patient over 50 years old until proven otherwise? How is it treated? Diverticulitis. Treat medically with broad-spectrum antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole. Initiate bowel rest with gradual advancement of diet and a nasogastric tube if nausea and vomiting are present. For disease that recurs or is refractory to medical therapy, consider sigmoid colon resection. Question 11. What tests should and should not be done to confirm possible cases of diverticulitis? What test does every patient need after a treated episode of diverticulitis? Colonoscopy and barium enema should not be performed in the acute setting because colon rupture may occur. However, one of these tests should be done in every patient after treatment to exclude colon carcinoma. Order a CT scan, if necessary, to confirm a diagnosis of diverticulitis. Question 12. Describe the typical history, physical exam, and lab findings of pancreatitis. How is it treated? Look for epigastric pain that radiates to the back in an alcohol abuser or a patient with a history of or risk factors for gallstones. Serum amylase and or lipase should be elevated. If these values are not given, order them. Other common signs include decreased bowel sounds, localized ileus, a sentinel loop of bowel on abdominal radiograph, and nausea, vomiting, and or anorexia. Treat pancreatitis supportively. Narcotics are often needed for pain control. Do not feed the patient initially. Place a nasogastric tube as needed for nausea and vomiting, and give intravenous fluids and other supportive care measures. Watch for the complications of pseudocyst and pancreatic abscess, both of which can be diagnosed by CT scan and may require surgical intervention. Question 13. Describe the usual history of a perforated ulcer. How is it treated? Patients often have no history of alcohol abuse or gallstones, which are pancreatitis risk factors. Abdominal radiographs classically show free air under the diaphragm and a history of peptic ulcer disease is often included in the patient description. Remember that a perforated bowel can cause increased amylase and lipase levels. Treat with surgery. Question 14. What are the hallmarks of small bowel obstruction? How is it treated? Small bowel obstruction commonly causes bilious vomiting, an early symptom, abdominal distension, constipation, hyperactive bowel sounds, and usually poorly localized abdominal pain. Radiographs show multiple air fluid levels. Patients often have a history of previous surgery. Start treatment by withholding food, placing a nasogastric tube, and giving intravenous fluids. If the obstruction does not resolve or if peritoneal signs develop, laparotomy is usually needed. CT scanning can confirm an uncertain diagnosis in stable patients and may reveal the underlying cause of obstruction. Question 15. What are the common causes of a small bowel obstruction? In adults, the most common cause is adhesions, which usually develop from prior surgery. Incarcerated hernias, Crohn's disease, and malignancy are other common causes. 
Other causes include mechal diverticulum and intussusception, both of which are typically seen in children. Question 16. Describe the signs and symptoms of large bowel obstruction. What causes it? How is it treated? Large bowel obstruction usually presents with gradually increasing abdominal pain, abdominal distension, constipation, and feculent vomiting, which is a late symptom. In older adults, the most common causes are diverticulitis, colon cancer, and volvulus. In children, watch for Hirschsprung disease. Treat early by withholding food and placing a nasogastric tube for nausea and vomiting. Sigmoid volvulus can often be decompressed with an endoscope. Other causes or refractory cases require surgery to relieve the obstruction. Question 17. List and differentiate the three common types of groin hernias. Number 1. Indirect hernias are the most common type in both sexes and all age groups. The hernia sac travels through the inner and outer inguinal rings, the protrusion begins lateral to the inferior epigastric vessels, and into the scrotum or labia because of a patent processus vaginalis, which is a congenital defect. Number two, direct hernias with no sac protrude medial to the inferior epigastric vessels because of weakness in the abdominal musculature of Hesselbach's triangle. Number three, Femoral hernias are more common in women. The hernia, with no sac, goes through the femoral ring onto the anterior thigh, located below the inguinal ring. Of the three types, femoral hernias are the most susceptible to incarceration and strangulation. All three types are treated with elective surgical repair if symptomatic. Question 18. Define incarcerated and strangulated hernias. Incarceration occurs when a herniated organ is trapped and becomes swollen and edematous. Incarcerated hernias are the most common cause of small bowel obstruction in patients who have had no previous abdominal surgery, and the second most common cause in patients who have had previous abdominal surgery. Treatment is prompt surgery. Strangulation occurs after incarceration when the entrapment becomes so severe that the blood supply is cut off. Strangulation can lead to necrosis and is a surgical emergency. Patients may present with symptoms of small bowel obstruction and shock. Question 19. True or false? Generally, patients should not eat or drink eight or more hours before surgery. True. This protocol reduces the chance of aspiration and subsequent pneumonia. Question 20. What is the best test, other than a good history, for preoperative evaluation of pulmonary function? Spirometry, which gives functional vital capacity, forced expiratory volumes, and maximal voluntary ventilation. A good history, such as activity level and exercise tolerance, is also useful. Question 21. What measures help to prevent intraoperative and postoperative deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolus? Compressive and elastic stockings, early ambulation, and or low-dose heparins, such as unfractionated or low molecular weight. Question 22. What is the most common cause of fever in the first 24 hours after surgery? Atelectasis. Prevent and treat atelectasis with early ambulation, chest physiotherapy and percussion, incentive spirometry, and proper pain control. Too much pain and too many narcotics 
which both can decrease respiratory effort, increase the risk of atelectasis. Question 23. What are the other common causes of postoperative fever? The five W's. Wind, water, walk, wound, and weird drugs. These summarize the common causes of postoperative fever in the order that they tend to occur. Wind stands for atelectasis and pneumonia. Water for urinary tract infection. Walk for deep venous thrombosis. Wound for surgical wound infection. And weird drugs for drug fever. In patients with daily fever spikes that do not respond to antibiotics, think about an intra-abdominal abscess. Order a CT scan to locate and then drain the abscess if one is present. Question 24. Define fascial or wound dehiscence. How do you recognize it? Fascial or wound dehiscence occurs when the surgical wound opens spontaneously, usually 5 to 10 days postoperatively. Look for leakage of serosanguineous fluid from the wound, particularly after the patient coughs or strains. Frequently, the wound is infected. Surgical reclosure of the wound and treatment of infection are required. Number 25. Explain the A, B, C, D, E's of trauma. How are they used? The A, B, C, D, E's of trauma are airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. They are the keys to the initial management of trauma patients. Follow them in order if simultaneous management is not possible. For example, if a patient is bleeding to death and also has a blocked airway, address airway management first. Question 26. What is the difference between airway and breathing in trauma protocol? Airway means provision, protection, and maintenance of an adequate airway at all times. If the patient can answer questions, the airway is fine. You can use an oropharyngeal airway in uncomplicated cases and give supplemental oxygen. When you are in doubt or the patient's airway is blocked, intubate. If intubation fails, do a cricothyroidotomy. Breathing is similar to airway, but even patients with an open airway may not be breathing spontaneously. The end result is the same. When you are in doubt or the patient is not breathing, intubate. If intubation fails, do a cricothyroidotomy. Question 27. Explain circulation, disability, and exposure. Circulation refers to circulating blood volume. For practical purposes, it means that if the patient seems hypovolemic, they're tachycardic, bleeding, have a weak pulse, are pale, diaphoretic, or have capillary refill more than two seconds, give intravenous fluids and or blood products. Initially, you should start with two large bore intravenous lines and give a bolus of 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram, roughly one liter, of lactated ringer solution or normal saline. Then reassess the patient after the bolus for improvement. Repeat the bolus if needed. Disability refers to the need to check neurologic function. In practical terms, this translates into doing a Glasgow Coma Scale assessment. Intubation is generally recommended for patients with a Glasgow Coma Scale less than 8, as they are usually unable to reliably protect their airway. Exposure reminds you to expose and examine the entire body. In other words, remove all of the patient's clothes 
and put a finger in every orifice so that you do not miss any occult injuries. Question 28. What imaging films are routinely ordered for most patients with at least moderately severe trauma? Cervical spine, chest, and pelvic radiographs. Question 29. What is the imaging study of choice for head trauma? A non-contrast head CT, which is better than MRI for acute trauma. Question 30. How do you manage a patient with blunt abdominal trauma? In patients with blunt abdominal trauma, the initial findings determine the appropriate course of action. If the patient is awake and stable and your examination is benign, observe the patient and repeat the abdominal exam later. You can also do a fast scan, which is focused assessment by sonography in trauma. This is used to check for free fluid in the abdomen and pelvis. Meanwhile, perform a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with oral and IV contrast. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable with hypotension and or shock that does not respond to fluid challenge, proceed directly to laparotomy. If the patient has a positive fast scan, that is, there's free fluid, presumably blood, in the abdomen, proceed to laparotomy. If the patient has altered mental status, the abdomen cannot be examined, or an obvious source of blood loss explains the hemodynamic instability, order a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with oral and IV contrast. Also get a CT scan of the head and cervical spine if altered mental status is present. Diagnostic peritoneal lavage is no longer used because it is nonspecific and less sensitive than CT, and it can also alter CT scan results. Question 31. How is penetrating abdominal trauma managed? In patients with penetrating abdominal trauma, for example, gunshot or stab wound, the type of injury and the initial findings determine the course of action. With any gunshot wound that may have violated the peritoneal cavity, proceed directly to laparotomy. With a wound from a sharp instrument, management is more controversial. Either proceed directly to laparotomy, your best choice if the patient is unstable, or perform a CT scan if the patient is stable. With non-operative management, perform serial abdominal exams. Question 32. Which six thoracic injuries can be rapidly fatal? Airway obstruction, open pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, massive hemothorax, and flail chest. You may be asked to recognize and or treat any of these six conditions on the USMLE. Question 33. How do you recognize and treat airway obstruction? Patients with airway obstruction have no audible breath sounds, cannot answer questions even if awake, and may be gurgling. Treat with intubation. If intubation fails, do a cricothyroidotomy or a tracheostomy in the operating room if time allows. Question 34. How do you recognize and treat an open pneumothorax? An open pneumothorax presents with an open defect in the chest wall and decreased or absent breath sounds on the affected side. This condition causes poor ventilation and oxygenation. Treat with intubation positive pressure ventilation, and closure of the defect in the chest wall. To close the defect, use gauze and tape it on three sides only. This approach allows excessive pressure to escape 
so that you do not convert an open pneumothorax into a tension pneumothorax. Question 35. How do you recognize and treat a tension pneumothorax? A tension pneumothorax may occur after blunt or penetrating trauma to the chest. Air forced into the pleural space cannot escape and collapses the affected lung and then shifts the mediastinum and trachea to the opposite side of the chest. Findings include absent breath sounds on the affected side and a hypertympanic percussion sound. Hypotension and or distended neck veins may result from impaired cardiac filling. Treat with needle thoracentesis, followed by insertion of a chest tube. Question 36. Describe the presentation of cardiac tamponade. How is it diagnosed and treated? Cardiac tamponade is classically associated with penetrating trauma to the left chest. Patients have hypotension due to impaired cardiac filling, distended neck veins, muffled heart sounds, pulsus paradoxus, which is an exaggerated fall in blood pressure on inspiration, and normal breath sounds. If the patient is unstable, treat with pericardiocentesis. Put a catheter through the skin and into the pericardial sac and aspirate blood and fluid. If the patient is stable, you can first do an echocardiogram to confirm the diagnosis. Question 37. Define massive hemothorax. How is it diagnosed and treated? Massive hemothorax is defined as a loss of more than one liter of blood into the thoracic cavity. Patients have decreased, not absent, breath sounds in the affected area, a dull note on percussion, hypotension, collapsed neck veins from blood leaving the vascular tree, and tachycardia. Placement of a chest tube allows the blood to come out. Give intravenous fluids and or blood before you place the chest tube if the diagnosis is known in advance. If the bleeding stops after the initial outflow, order a chest radiograph or CT scan to check for remaining blood or pathology. Treat supportively. If the bleeding does not stop, emergent thoracotomy is required. Question 38. How do you recognize and treat flail chest? Flail chest occurs when several adjacent ribs are broken in multiple places, causing the affected part of the chest wall to move paradoxically during respiration, inward during inspiration, outward during expiration. Almost all patients have an associated pulmonary contusion, which, combined with pain, may make respiration inadequate. When you are in doubt or the patient is not doing well, intubate and give positive pressure ventilation. Question 39. What is the most common cause of immediate death after an automobile accident or a fall from great height? Aortic rupture. Look for a widened mediastinum on chest radiograph and an appropriate history of trauma. Order a CT scan or angiogram if the contained aortic rupture is suspected. Aortic laceration, traumatic aortic injury, and traumatic pseudoaneurysm all pretty much describe the phenomenon seen in initial survivors. An aortic rupture contained by a hematoma or an inadequate amount of surrounding tissue, for example, adventitia only. Treat with immediate surgical repair. Question 40. What do you need to know about splenic rupture? The spleen is the most commonly injured organ in blunt trauma.
Patients with splenic rupture, the most severe form of injury, have a history of blunt abdominal trauma, hypotension, tachycardia, shock, and or care sign, which is referred pain in the left shoulder. Patients with Epstein-Barr virus infection or infectious mononucleosis and splenomegaly should avoid contact sports to prevent rupture. Make sure patients with a history of functional or surgical asplenia have received the pneumococcal, meningococcal, and H. influenzae vaccines. These are all encapsulated organisms. Question 41. What clue suggests a diagnosis of diaphragmatic rupture? How is it treated? Diaphragm rupture usually occurs after blunt trauma and on the left side because the liver protects the right side of the diaphragm. You may hear bowel sounds when listening to the chest or see bowel that has herniated into the chest on chest radiograph. Treatment is surgical repair of the diaphragm. Question 42. What are the three zones of the neck? How is trauma in each of the different zones managed? Zone 1 is the base of the neck from 2 centimeters above the clavicles to the level of the clavicles. Zone 2 is the mid-cervical region from 2 centimeters above the clavicle to the angle of the mandible. Zone 3 is the top of the neck from the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. With Zone 1 and 3 injuries, you generally should order an arteriogram before going to the operating room. With Zone 2 injuries, proceed to the operating room for surgical exploration without an arteriogram. In patients with obvious bleeding or rapidly expanding hematoma in the neck, proceed directly to the operating room, no matter where the injury is. Question 43. How should a choking victim be managed? Always leave choking patients alone if they are speaking, coughing, or breathing. If they stop doing all of these, perform the Heimlich maneuver. Question 44. What should you do if a tooth is knocked out? Put the tooth back in place with no cleaning or only saline to rinse it off and stabilize the tooth in place. The sooner this is done, the better the prognosis for salvage of the tooth. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at insidetheboards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.